Well, folks, a very warm welcome to our latest edition of the Generation Podcast. And our last podcast was from Edinburgh, from Midway, where we spoke to Sharon and Natasha at 20 Schemes. Um, so really, we could not be further away geographically, socially. Today, I'm going to take you on a trip to Los Angeles, California. And my guest today is Scott Mel, who is one of the pastors at a church called Cornerstone, which is in West LA. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, David. It's great to be with you. Excellent. And so we are four o'clock in the afternoon, more or less. Tell us what time scale you're on in LA. Uh, yeah, so it's it's eight in the morning here. I've I've still got my uh, I've still got my morning coffee, <laughs> and we're uh, yeah we're <laughs> just getting the day rolling. But you guys are up so incredibly early in the U.S. Is that not the case? You know, uh, you mean on, on a regular basis? Yeah. You know, well, you know, we I think we we oftentimes are, but uh, ever since the. Uh, you know, we, we, we're doing this schooling from home with my kids and I'm doing the working home thing. You know, I, I, I will say I'm not getting I don't get up as early as I used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how is lockdown affecting you? Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's been interesting for the 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 church, right? We had to we're, we're doing live stream gatherings for the church. Um, I, I have four school aged kids. And so they're all they're all doing school online from home, trying to connect with their teachers and I'm working from home. And so, you know, our, 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 our internet's getting to run for its money and we're, and you know, we're, we're kind of in, I, I think probably, I mean, one of the most significant things is on top of all that, you know, there's, there's the daily difficulties, but on top of all that, that so many people in our, in our church family are, you know, furloughed from their jobs or, or losing jobs because they're trying to, you know, manage the, manage things uh societally and and so i you know i don't think there's many good options but it's it's definitely a tough time for for a lot of people and just a lot of uh, a lot of shepherding a lot of pastoring going on yeah because like i was in the u.s two months ago and it was like being in the land flowing with milk and honey you know folk were talking about an economic boom there was not a word about any sign of downturn and all of a sudden we're like this. So how's it affecting life in LA? You know, I, I mean, it's, it's affecting life in LA pretty significantly. Um, I mean, part of that's because, uh, you know, I, we've had a lot of, I mean, statewide, we've had a lot of, a uh, lot of shutdowns and the entertainment industry has essentially like shut down production almost essentially completely. And that's not only a number of jobs in the industry itself, but a lot of supporting jobs and caterers and, you know, surrounding businesses and things like that. And so, um, you know, I, I think that we're at, it's, right now when we're recording this, it's been about two months for us. And I think everybody's been able to weather that. I think the, the, the big question is, I think, increasingly, uh, it, it obviously gets increasingly difficult as, as, as time goes by. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 pretty pretty life and um, ministry altering. I mean, de- definitely the most altering time or season kind of society I've ever I've ever experienced in life or in ministry. Sure. For us here, 
Scott, although you've got a Scottish name, not many folk in Scotland know who you are. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you were raised, where you studied, um, your wife, your children, and where you minister yeah. just now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was I, I was raised in Colorado until I was 10 and then moved to California. I've been in California since then. Um, my I got met, met my wife in college. Um, we got married right after college, and then I started seminary um, at the Master's Seminary, and uh, in 2005, moved to Los Angeles, moved into West Los Angeles to plant a church, um, and so it was been part of kind of a, a, a church, uh, from a church that was sending out a number of church plants at the time, um, and that was 15 years ago. That's still the same church I'm with now. Um, we planted in 2005. In 2011, we merged together with a 100-year-old Baptist church um, who was actually really, just really like-minded. We had a lot of friendships and a lot of um, a lot of connections together, and they were, their senior pastor had retired and um, wanted to, instead of kind of going on a search, looking for a new pastor, wanted, wanted to join together instead. And then as we prayed about it, 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 it became obvious that the Lord was doing something really unique there. And so that's been a really unique and exciting um, experience as well. I got my, uh, in the midst of all of that, I got my doctorate from, the, from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Um, and in biblical counseling and, and really that was simply because I, after, after I was, um, after I'd become a pastor, after we planted the church, uh, I realized that I, I'd been prepared to study. I'd, I'd been prepared to, to preach, but there was a lot of the realities of things going on in people's lives that I still didn't quite know how to help apply the Bible to or help them, uh, walk, walk through. And so, um, yeah, in, in the midst of all of that, uh, when we, when we planted the church, my wife was uh, pregnant with our, our first child. And so, and he's, he's now 14. And so we have a 14 year old son, um, a 12 year old daughter, a nine year old son and an eight year old daughter. And so they're all, uh, yeah, they're they're all they're all keeping us busy, and I mean they're at really really fun ages at this point, um, and so yeah, and we're just you know navigating this uh, kind of lockdown, safer at home season with with yeah. them, but it's been, um, but but it's uh, yeah, it's actually there's actually been a, some silver linings in that, some sweet times we've gotten to spend together. Yeah, a fascinating thing there that there's a church plant merged with a hundred year old church. I mean, we're yeah. talking there of two very different cultures. Um, you know, mm-hmm. tell tell me how it worked out. Yeah, absolutely. I you know, I, I I've I've been asked you know numerous times, especially from uh, people who want to do church merges since you know, like like what what does it look like? You know how how you do it? Kind of what's the path? And I and I mean, I, the one thing I'll say is that I, I don't know if there's one way to do it. Uh, it. It was the way, the reason it worked was because it was the Lord because he was in it because he was, he was very obviously working through that. Um, you know, I think it, it the, really the only reason it worked and it really did work. I mean, we, I think neither of us lost a ton of people. Like it became really a huge place for each other. But I think the, the reason it worked was because our, our people had determined um, genuinely that, 
before the Lord and in light of his design for the church and in light, light of the, <clears throat> the gospel work he was doing in their lives, that, that we really we really didn't need each other. That there was a huge benefit from each other. And so each one kind of went into it. Uh, the, the, the church plant, we, we were really, really young. I mean, I don't think we had anybody over 30 or 35 at the, at the time. Um, but there was, there was a genuine hunger and humility to, to learn from an older generation. Um, and of the older church, there wasn't exclusively, you know, elderly, but it was, it was definitely a life stage elderly older and there was a genuine um hunger and humility that wanted to kind of learn from and both the, the the energy and the vision um of of the the younger church and and then the, the other thing is i think we um we we did share i mean we shared our core beliefs you know we shared our core uh, convictions about and heart for the city and um, theological convictions. And so it put it, set us up in, in, in a way that the Lord was really able to build. And it was, I think it was through the building of relationships, through the building of the, the interconnectedness of the family, uh, that, that trust really flourished. And then therefore, uh, the, the, the church family flourished from there. Yeah. I, I mean, I am fascinated by that because I'm assuming that, I mean, I don't want to stereotype, but I'm assuming that the church plant was a little bit more edgy, a little bit more contemporary, whereas a hundred-year-old church Mm. would have tended maybe towards the more traditional. So that must have taken humility on both sides to just do something for the bigger cause. Yeah. Yeah, I I think think that's that's exactly it. And I think to whatever extent there was maybe some edginess or some, you know, like... I think the conviction, though, was, well, that might be who we are when it's just us, but we don't have to be that, right? Like, we don't, the, 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 and, that, and that's where, I mean, we have, it actually has laid the groundwork for a church of um, huge diversity in socioeconomics, in generational diversity, in, in ethnic background diversity, um, even in linguistic diversity now, is we have a... Um, Portion of our church that worships in English, portion that worships in Spanish, portion that portion that worships in Farsi, um, and all striving to be one church together. Um, it, it really laid the groundwork for us to say, you know what, I, I and, and and people still, I think, experience this when they when they show up. You know, they, they know this isn't a church that's that's singularly designed for them. Um, yeah, I don't think I don't think anybody who ever walks into our church and says, oh, this church is exactly for me. Um, because it's not exactly for anybody. Um, it's, it's, it's a family that's striving to, uh, yeah, to, to, to serve one another, to even learn to worship and engage with the Lord in, in ways that we learn from one another. Scott, this is music to my ears. I mean, I'm, as you know, mission director for a, you know, a Presbyterian denomination here in Scotland. Yeah. And I can think of a couple of situations, especially in cities, where plants could merge with traditional churches, but it's just not happening. I think maybe one of the things I've got to do next week is maybe start some honest conversations with people, and hopefully some mm. folk are listening to that podcast. But just let me, again, move on. I was fascinated that your church has got a lot of pastors. I mean, there's a ton of them. We do, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
can you tell me a little bit about the difference between vocational and non-vocational? Yeah, absolutely. So, so our, our vocational pastors are um, those who who are freed up financially, they get their living from the church, so that they're freed up to to do ministry and to shepherd the church full time. Um, and even when we even when we started the church uh, as a church plant, we we kind of started it with this conviction of of a plurality of, of pastor, a pastoral plurality, pastoral uh, eldership. And so instead of, you know, kind of just naming one senior pastor, we decided we would, we would co-pastor together. Um, originally, uh, my co-pastor, Brian Colmery and I, and, um, and that's, that's something that's continued actually. And actually, I think that's one of the pieces that, uh, even set us up to succeed in some of these, uh, other areas, both in the merge and things like that, um, that we, you know, it wasn't one church is going to come in and their guy is going to be in charge, yeah. uh, but we're going to be co-pastors together. We're going to serve one another and, and use our unique gifts, right. But use them together, um, to, to, to lead the church forward. And, and so as a result, we have these numerous vocational pastors, but we also have, uh, five or six, non-vocational pastors. So, so men, in, and, and part of this is because we, we believe that, that it's our job as the church not to make pastors, but to simply recognize pastors, recognize those men in the church who God has qualified by their character, who are shepherding and doing the work of shepherds, um, and to recognize and, and call them what they are, the shepherds, pastors in our church. And so there's, you know, there, we do have five or six others who um, were they're vo- vocationally, they uh, have a, a different career. That's how they provide for their families, um, but are recognized as co-pastors along with us, um, and and just you know use their gifts to different extents because of their uh, capacity uh, limitations. Great. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. I've been in LA one time. I was at a conference in Long Beach and enjoyed yeah. it. Um, Obviously, you're a surfer. What do you do as a hobby? <laughs> you know, I, I, I actually, well, I, I can stand up on a long surfboard, but that's, that's about it. I'm not quite sure <laughs> I'm a surfer. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I love to, um, more than anything, actually, I'd, I, I love to, to ride my bicycle um, and, and run. Um, a, year, a few years ago, I... Uh, started doing um, kind of training for these little triathlons. And by triathlon, I don't mean like the big Ironman things. I mean like the more like play weekend warrior <laughs> type, yeah. but uh, just as, you know, excuse to get me, uh, to get me working out. But it, the, the beach is uh, only four miles down a bike path from our house. And so riding my bike down there and riding along the beach is probably one of my, my favorite things to do. The feel like, the, the Lord and I get to, to, to meet sweet times that way. Um, and I also love to kind of get out of the city. I, I, like I said, I grew up as a kid in Colorado. And so I do love to get out of the city and go hiking, um, go camping, uh, when, when we can, or, or explore kind of our national parks. I, I kind of feel like the, the West side of the United States is, it's kind of like God's playground. I mean, he was just like showing off. There's such a diversity of landscapes and, you know, gigantic 
thousands year old trees and canyons near the Grand Canyon and, and everything else. And so, um, that if, if, if I can, you know, if, if we as a family could, could do some road trips and things like that, it's probably one of our favorite things to do. But, um, and, and other than that, I mean, my, my hobbies are, uh, chasing my kids around and, you know, playing catch and, uh, yeah, trying to keep up with them. You must come to Scotland sometime then. We'll show you some scenery. It'll put Colorado in the shade. Uh, you know, that does not, that <laughs> I, I actually would exactly expect that. My, my brother uh, did his, my brother and my sister-in-law went on their uh, honeymoon there and they're, they're from Colorado as well. They went and they just rave. I mean, just, have, have told, they've told me the exact same thing. You, you, you have to at some point go to Scotland because it's just, yeah, just mind blowing. Absolutely. Okay, so you've got four children now. I understand that in February of this year that you gave birth to a fifth child. Um, <laughs> That's right. Tell, tell us about this fifth child. Yeah. So, so we uh, I uh, released uh, this this book, "Loving Messy People," um, which, yeah, I mean, that's probably the best. That's <laughs> probably the best way to describe it. Um, although the, the the development was was even longer than nine months. Um, I think, uh, you know, it was, it was really, really, I, I originally, um, set out to just develop this content in order to equip, really just equip our local church. Um, I, I had been trained in theology, trained in biblical counseling. Um, but I also realized that just, you know, one person as, as a pastor or even just a couple of pastors, being trained in this way doesn't uh, still don't have the capacity to care for and minister to the entire church family in the midst of all the different struggles and all the different things that that, that, that pop up in the midst of um, in the midst of life. And and I'm convicted from Scripture that that it's our job to to equip the church so they can care for and minister to one another, as we see in Ephesians four. Um, and and so we develop. I developed this this kind of training to equip first our small group leaders and then the church as a, as a whole in how to care for and minister to one another. Um, and then a number of years ago, <clears throat> I was speaking at a conference and a, and a um, publisher approached and asked if I, you know, had any ideas or wanted to put some of this into to book form. And, and it was, it was kind of a long journey. Um, that actually, that, that, that first publisher looked at it, the acquisitions editor loved it and the, committee looked at it and we're like, well, maybe not. And they passed it along and, and a second, not a second publisher, but long story short, I, I think, um, the Lord's really used it in some powerful ways in our local church. And I, I'm excited to take some of that content and make it just even more widely available, uh, to, to the church and to, yeah, the, the, the church more broadly. Yeah, I mean, the book is called Loving Messy People. The subtitle is Messy Art of Helping One Another Become More Like Jesus. And I have to say, I read it and it was a page turner. It's easy to read. Uh, you know, there's great quotations in it. You've researched it. You've got access to a wide range of background reading and, and helpers there. Let, let me just talk of one or two things in the book. Now, you are ministering in California. It's a very open culture. It's a therapeutic culture. The whole of the U.S. is mm -hmm. compared to the U.K. in general and Scotland specifically. 
one of the, the sort of theses of the book is speaking the truth to messy people, um, just being out there, being honest. You say that's mm-hmm. the very nature of community. What would you say to a culture like ours, a Scottish culture, which is fairly private and mm. reserved, and we don't naturally share our mess with people? Counsel me, Scott. Mm. Tell me what I should do. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I mean, so I think that, number one, I think that the beauty of Scripture, obviously, right, is that it it was written and delivered and and uh, inspired by God, given to us for to apply in every culture throughout history, right? So it's it's not monoculture. It's not that the call to love one another, the call to help one another become more like Jesus, you know, <laughs> may look a certain way in certain cultures. Um, but it obviously wasn't written for you know 21st century American culture. All right? it, it was it was written for for every culture across the world. And so from there, I think the 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 call then isn't simply just a simple, bold, uh, open honesty. You know, the the, the call in, in scripture is to developing is to love one another and to love one another deeply in order to build genuine relationships that that then provide a context for us to speak truth into one another's lives and not just the surface of one another's lives, but into the, the, the details and even the, the mess of one another's lives. And that's really, I mean, one of the, the kind of theses and context of, of the book as a whole is that this isn't just about, you know, discipleship in the sense that, you know, I think sometimes when we think discipleship, we think of it simply as a talking ministry, right? Like, here, tell me your problem, and I'll tell you the scripture verse, and, you know, we'll, we'll go on. But what God calls us to is something much more robust, much, much deeper. He's calling us into relationship with one another. And while, while you know, Scottish culture might um, be a little bit more reserved— or might not be as, you know, equally open. I, I, I assume that it's also, but there are still dynamics in Scottish culture that are, that are deeply relational, right? And the, and, and the structures that those relationships uh, take provide a context for the genuine Christ-shaped love that he, he calls us to, to, to take place, which then provides the opportunities, I think, and the unique opportunities in each unique um, context and unique, in each unique relationship to uh, speak truth into what we see, what we know, and, and where the Lord has, has placed us. Okay, let me unpack the context a little bit. I guess that you cannot have these conversations with someone that you've just met in the line at Tesco, or Tesco's our equivalent of Target or, or Walmart. So yeah. you, you meet yeah. someone in the line there, you don't start sharing your mess with them. Tell me about the context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is, it's, it's about building those, those, yeah, it's not just the person you, you meet at the store God's calling us to, to love people by, by taking the time to, to genuinely get to know them, right. To, to build relationships, to, to listen. Um, and, and sometimes, and, and to listen patiently. I think sometimes listening patiently, uh, means taking the time to, to draw hearts out, um, one of the proverbs. Oh, I'm gonna blank on it right now, off the t- off the top of my head. It talks about the the, the wisdom and how a, a wise man draws out uh, another's heart, and mm-hmm. 
and God is calling us, I think, to these these relationships that that also bear with one another through the difficulties that are present, that are that are active and 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 serving one another, so that we we earn that trust, we we earn the the, the closeness and the the intimacy that then provides the opportunity to not only see the messes in one another's lives, but, but speak lovingly into them. But yeah, it, it requires those, those types of um, deep engaged relationships. Okay. Here's here's another thing. Um, you know, you, you talk about mess and that resonates with every one of us because our lives are a mess, you know, we're heart of man, yeah. desperately wicked who can know it. We are, you know, totally depraved, more loved and cherished than we ever thought, absolutely, but more screwed up and messed up than we could ever imagine. A lot of today's evangelical culture seems to me or could be open to the accusation of seeing a mess as a badge of honour. You know, a chaotic mm. life seems to be one of the fruits of the Spirit. And mm. some writers, not so much these days, but a couple of years ago, were almost kind of antinomian, you know, boasting about mm-hmm. their sin, boasting about their failure. Can you give us a little bit of guidance between a healthy recognition and awareness of our mess and an unhealthy celebratory nature? Absolutely. Oh, that's, that's such a such a great question. I think, and I think so insightful. I think you're you're dead on to the the, the danger in our culture that wants to downplay. Um, Sin that wants to downplay the the, the difficulty in life and, and, and just you know uh, think of it simply as as normal and acceptable. I, I, I think that I think that first it starts with I think an appropriate um, an appropriate understanding of the mess of life just starts with just being honest about the reality of the fact that we live in a fallen world, right? Where where we suffer in various ways every single day. Right where things are difficult and where we uh, we suffer at the at the hands of others, um, we suffer at the hands of a, the, the fallen environment we live in. We suffer from the reality of having fallen bodies that aren't perfect yet, um, and that, that that break down and have difficulty and ultimately die. Um, and and I think being honest about the mess means also being honest about the reality of the depth of sin in our hearts and being honest about the fact that that we aren't sanctified, perfectly sanctified yet. We, um, we still worship ourselves instead of God in, in a whole host of different ways. Um, and, but there's a difference between recognizing that and seeing, meeting God in it and seeing his desire to redeem it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a difference between that and celebrating it and kind of reveling in it. Because it's the, the mess isn't isn't meant both in a fallen world and in our fallen hearts. That that's not that's that's not the goal. That's not the way things are supposed to be. That's, that's actually what Christ came to redeem. Right. That, that's that's why he died and suffered himself for our sake, um, so that we could be redeemed from it, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be um, made holy and and increasingly being uh, made holy. And so I think that. That I guess I guess I'd say uh, an appropriate understanding of the mess in our lives. Uh, I think naturally, in, in, in a Christ from a Christ-like perspective, would naturally lead us 
to a place of, of deep humility, not pride. Mm-hmm. It means it's to a humility that says, you know what, uh, I this is hard, and I am not following the Lord the way I, I need to. God, would you help me? Would you redeem me? It, 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 it creates a, a dependence, a humble dependence on the truth of the gospel, on the work of the Spirit, uh, one that continually cries out to God, uh, which is different, I think, than the... Um, I think when we celebrate the mess, uh, it, it's, it's a response more in pride um, that thinks that there's something edgy or cool about it or um, that, that, that wants to kind of uh, revel in it and, 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 and that takes pride in it instead of having a broken heart uh, over it. Sure, because, you know, as I say, a couple of years ago, there were some guys who were on the circuit, you know, there's whole conferences about this, and, you know, most of them have mm-hmm. moved on, sadly, some of them mm-hmm. uh, have fallen pretty badly, but that's a story, but let me remind you of one great quote, I mean, there are so many great quotes in your book, uh, you may recognise this, I think it's even original to you, Scott, when we call one another <laughs> back to the truth of the gospel, we throw fuel on each other's love for God. I don't know if you recognize that, but I love that. You know, that the gospel acts as a fuel. Now, kind of connected to that, you've got a couple, I don't know if they're imaginary or not, George and Naomi, their marriage is in a bit of a mess. Um, the interesting thing is, in the book, you would tend not to go, as it were, for the marriage. You would go for something else. Tell us what that something mm. else would be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that for all of us, when our sometimes a lot of times our presenting problem or the presenting issue, or maybe the headline issue that says, "Look, this this is the biggest problem." Um, Oftentimes, what's actually going on, or the actual issue that needs to be addressed, is is much deeper. And particularly in in marriage, I think that we can uh, we can shoot for the goal of having kind of harmony in marriage. We can have, especially if, if if there's difficulty in marriage, you know, maybe you go to a counselor, maybe you go to a friend, maybe you go to a pastor, and say, you know, will you help us? But when you ask, will you help us? Usually the what you're looking for is, will you help us um, to be able to get along, right? Will you help our marriage to uh, be able to, to to flourish? But when we, as we read scripture, you know, a flourishing marriage and, and a loving marriage and graciousness in marriage is actually a, a byproduct. It's not the ultimate goal. Uh, the ultimate goal is becoming more like Jesus, right? And, and, so when we come, even in a marriage, in a in a, because I, I think you could actually help a couple to get along better. You could help a couple to um, have a calmer, maybe easier marriage without help, without them becoming more like Jesus, right? And and I think this is oftentimes what, especially in Christian culture, when when we prioritize things that, that scripture prioritizes, I, I, I kind of call this like idol swapping, right? And so mm-hmm. instead of getting rid of my idols and worshiping God instead, I just switch, I swap out my, my destructive idols like, you know, alcohol, alcoholism or working, workaholism or whatever. I, I, I switch out my, my 
destructive idols for what seem like more healthy idols, right? My, the healthy idols of my children or the healthy idol of my spouse or the healthy idol of, you know, the, a particular work ethic or something like that. And so I think what's, what's really interesting is that in scripture, that, like that was, that was the religion. I mean, the reality is that that was the religion of the Pharisees, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they swapped out the, the bad looking idols for good looking idols. Um, but God is, and, and his, his entire rebuke to them was always that he was after something more. He was after something deeper. He, he was after their hearts. He wanted their, their hearts to love him with all of their heart, soul, and mind and strength. And, and so as we walk through life together, uh, I think we, we have to be careful not to just look at for the, the, the practical or pragmatic uh, solutions. But to recognize that in every situation, what God is after in us is helping us to fall deeper in love with Him, to love Him more, and to um, and, and to care for one another out of that worship for Him. And, and when we do, when we worship God more and more, when we uh, when our we inspire, when our hearts beat more and more in line with His, well, then. Yeah, as a result of that, we are more gracious in marriage. We're more patient and more kind, right? The fruits of the Spirit, we're more self-controlled. The fruits of the Spirit do uh, demonstrate themselves in every area in life. Um, but, but I think that's where in, in ministry to one another, whether it's formal ministry or even it's just friendship between Christian friends, uh, we, we need to remember that God is after, He's always after something deeper, and he, He's always after our hearts. Yeah. Moving on again, to the Bible, we started off a conversation. You said the Bible was relevant to all cultures. You got a really interesting insight there in that you say that Christians struggle less with the authority of scriptures than the sufficiencies. Now, in the circles in which you and I mix, there's not a problem mm-hmm. with the inspiration of the Bible. There's not a problem with inerrancy and fallibility. You know, we've got that. That's not a major yeah. issue. Um so guys and girls who buy into inerrancy, inspiration, etc., they've got the authority of the Bible. What do you mean by that they struggle with the sufficiency of the Bible? Mm. So uh, it's such a great question. And actually, I think it applies broadly in, in almost every area of life and every area of the church. I think when, when people struggle with the sufficiency of the Bible, I think they, they say, you know, it's true. You know, uh, it's true and it's authoritative and it has God's authority, but it's true and it's, but it's only helpful for the narrow number of things it speaks to. Yeah. And when, when we do, when we do that, I think that we oftentimes see certain struggles in our lives, uh, as outside of the realm of scripture, um, certain, you know, certain difficulties in life is outside of the realm of scripture. And so I, I think we do this personally with our personal struggles. I, I mean, I think we also do this, um, ecclesiologically in our churches, right? I think this is, I mean, at least in the United States, I think this is one of the reasons that, uh, you know, best business practices and business structures became kind of the, the go-to place to look for church growth, for church leadership, for church structure, you know, because we said, you know what, scripture is great for all the spiritual stuff, but it, but it can't help you really lead a church. We need business models. Right. We need. And, and, and so I think we do it in the church. And I think we do it in our own lives as well. You know, where we say, you know, I, I um, and, and that's not, not to say there's not helpful tips out there. Um, there's not helpful 
insights to glean. I think there absolutely are, uh, but I think that there's there's a reality that God's given His Word that's been not only true and inerrant, but sufficient uh, for the last two thousand years for everything the church and and His church has has needed. Um, and I think it's it's very tempting for us, especially kind of in a um, age of uh, enlightenment and in an age of um, kind of an overwhelming amount of information uh, to assume that that it's it's not quite enough for what we really truly need in in life or in the church. Yeah. Now, what, I mean, we don't have time to develop it just now, but one of the key things in the book, Loving Messy People, is the plan. Uh, you'll recognize that, knowing, serving, speaking, gospeling, and, you know, the plan is applied. But I love, one of the things that I really love is that you don't just talk about a rigid plan like a program. You've got that great quote that gospel care is like jazz and, you know, Louis Armstrong famously said about jazz, uh, if you have to ask what it is, you'll never know. Moving beyond the script. What, what do you mean by all that stuff? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it just means that I think most of us, when we're when we're going to minister to or care for somebody, right? when, when, you're, when you're called to speak truth into somebody else's life or somebody in, in your life is, is struggling or hurting and, and you want to know how you can help them, I think uh, the long and short of it is I think most of us just, we, we want a script, right? We want to know what's the Bible verse you go to when people are, someone's anxious. What's the Bible verse you go to when someone's uh, depressed or what you, what's the verse you go to or what do you say to someone when they're addicted? Um, but the problem is scripture doesn't work like that. God didn't give us a, a, a topically organized script. Um, he gave us, he was his word and he gave us his spirit and he called us to, to love one another um, in uh, a, a almost an infinite number of different ways. Um, and so when we're called to care for our ministers to one another, really I think what God's calling us to do is he's calling us to rooted in the scriptures. He's calling us to, to improvise, um, to not just, and I think we get in trouble when we look for a script because then when one person says that they're, uh, one friend says they're anxious and we share a verse with them and, and it's genuinely helpful for them, then when another friend says they're anxious, we just throw that same verse at them um, w- without trying to think through the, the context or what's actually most needed in their situation or in their moment. And, and that's when scripture, I think, becomes, it, it feels like platitudes. Uh, it feels simplistic. Uh, it feels like we're like just a Band-Aid we're kind of throwing at people. Um, because it's not genuinely contextualized in the midst of our relationship. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. We often say that one of the differences between a U.S. culture and a U.K. culture, rightly or wrongly, is that you guys love programs. So, like, 25 years ago, I was trained on evangelism explosion. A bunch of us were trained the two diagnostic questions. If you were to die tonight, could you say for sure that you'd go to heaven? If God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? It was a program, but it didn't always work. And, you know, you look at Jesus, he approached people so differently. You know, sometimes he played the flute, sometimes he played a dirge, uh, sometimes he went in soft, sometimes he went in hard. 
And it seems to me that the jazz, you know, illusion is extremely helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think of uh, I mean, one of the, the examples that always comes to my mind is just thinking of John chapter four, right? He when he's talking to the the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, he he asks her to go get her husband because of what he knows about her and about her life. But but then later on, he talks to, and then talks to her about living water because they're at a well, right? He, it's all contextualized in that moment. But then right after that, he talks to to Nicodemus, and he doesn't tell Nicodemus go get your wife, right? He doesn't tell Nicodemus you. Yeah. talk about living water because that's not what Nicodemus needs. To Nicodemus, he talks about uh, being born again, right? And But then even after talking to Nicodemus, you know, he doesn't then walk around and say and say to everyone, okay, that's his line now. No, you need to be born again and you need to be born again and you need to be born again. Like he, he Each person, he meets exactly where uh, they're at and uh, and, and speaks truth and it's it's the same truth but it's also uniquely tailored uh to to the moment and to the person absolutely and now another thing i i loved uh hold on i'll come over here is over enthusiastic for a scotsman that would never do but you say there <laughs> and, and that's particularly liberating maybe it's very scottish that i enjoyed this you said rarely if ever are there happy endings and it's not nice and neat like a neatly tied bow tie um, mm. can you see how that's liberating for many of us well I have, absolutely i mean i think wh- whether it's the whether it's the movies or just even our own imaginations like we i think whenever we're stepping into somebody else's difficulty i think that we we do long for uh, a nice, neat, happy ending you know, for, for an, a, a point in the relationship where we can just say, and then they lived happily ever after. Um, but, but that's, that, that's not the, that's not the way it works in the reality of both this, this fallen world and the midst of our fallen hearts. It, it's a journey, right? And it's a journey until, uh, Jesus takes us home and, and we get to walk portions of that journey with, with certain uh, others. And, and so I think, I think it, it, it's incredibly, I know it's incredibly freeing to me to know that when I'm ministering to someone, when I'm caring for them, yeah, I, I want to help them take steps to become incrementally more and more and more like Jesus. Um, it's not my job or even my calling to try to fix them or fix this, the, the problem or fix the situation and just make it go away. They're, 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 most of that's out of my control, um, but I can, I can love them. And I can point them to Christ, and I can speak truth, and, and and that's going to have real and impactful and genuinely transforming impact on their life. Um, but each one of our journeys is is just that, you know, it's a you know, it's, a, it's a journey. Scott, thank you so much for that conversation. It has been so illuminating and so encouraging. For the folks in the UK, let me remind you uh, of the name of Scott's book. It is Loving Messy People. The subtitle is The Messy Art of Helping One Another Become More Like Jesus. It is for sale in the UK. You can get this, and I I recommend 10ofthose.com. That is the number 10ofthose.com. It's an online Christian retailer, and they will get it to you. I know that Amazon have got it. Um, But in these days, let's really try and support Christian uh, booksellers who are struggling. So 
you know, Absolutely. You will, yeah, you will enjoy the book. It's a great read. Scott, thank you so much. Oh, th- thank you so much, David. It, it's been such a such a pleasure, such an honor to, to get to connect with you. And, uh, and I just enjoy so much getting to have conversations like this with like-minded brothers uh, as well. And we hope to see you over the pond in the Bonnyland of Scotland one day. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>